Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, you're listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On the show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences, featuring the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm Maya Goldberg-Safer. Over the next weeks, Dennis Funk will bring you sessions from the 2017 Third Coast Conference. But to kick off the season, we're starting with one of my favorite events from the conference. I'm Maya. I am the Artistic Associate at Third Coast. And this is opening night, late night provocations. What are provocations? Each year, we open the conference by inviting a handful of producers to share one provocative idea on stage, in five minutes or less. These short talks are meant to challenge, ignite, and inspire, like hashing out an issue with a friend over a drink, except this time in a room of 800 people. The first provocateur to this stage was Panoply producer Mia Lobau, ready to argue that signposting is dead. Hello. One of the first lessons many new audio producers learn is the magic of signposting. Signposting is a long-standing piece of audio storytelling trickery in which you tell the listener exactly where you are in a story and where you're going, using phrases like, now this is where things get really interesting, or pay attention because this story is about to get weird. Here's an example from the 2008 classic, The Giant Pool of Money, with Adam Davidson and Alex Bloomberg. But then something happened that makes matters worse. At this precise moment, one guy took one of that army's favorite investments and made it a lot less attractive. This is where we have to talk about Alan Greenspan, right? Yeah, we have to. I spotted all of these signposts in a single episode of Radiolab. The thing we're talking about, in yeah. so you should know... And it is at this moment when they enter the lake that, according to the story, something very weird happens. We'll get to your skepticism in a moment, but I want to talk a little bit more uh, about nucleators. Oh. Come on! Well, what does he mean? What well, does he mean? Here's what he means. There's another parallel, which I think is actually even more interesting. Um, it has to do with those seeds we talked about. So if you go back to the grapefruit. Signposting is one of those things producers can't get enough of. And I do appreciate this tool we have, this convenient way of orienting listeners. But pay attention, because this is where things get interesting. <laughs> I've had a change of heart. Signposting is dead to me. 
Signposting was born out of a time when radio listeners might drop into a story at any moment, often partway through. But podcasting has given us the opportunity to engage listeners in a new way. They have chosen to listen to our shows from the beginning. They've selected our one program from the thousands of options available. They are in a time and place when they are ready to listen. So we no longer need to ask them constantly to remember where they are in the story or to tell them what's coming next. We don't need to point the way all the time. In fact, our habit of signposting could be doing a disservice. In the show I produce at Panoply, Revisionist History, we have the benefit of working with someone who doesn't come with any radio baggage, and he's game to break the rules. I asked our host, Malcolm Gladwell, for his thoughts on signposting. The artificiality of it bothers me. It seems like it's an intrusion on the story. And also, it seems very mannered. And one of the things I wanted to stay away from with Revisionist History was what I felt was the overly mannered narrative style that came out of public radio. So I was trying not to be them. So Malcolm and our editor, Julia Barton, developed some scripting shorthand. They call it dummy copy. What Julia would do when she edited scripts was put signposting in, but not because I think she wanted that to be in the final text. What she was telling me as an editor is, you haven't done your job, Malcolm. You haven't told the story in a clear enough way so that they're going to not know what's going on at this point. So I I thought of her signposting more as editorial markers of my own storytelling failures, not as we have to do classic old school, hey, here's where we're going, here's where we've been. Malcolm points to one of our episodes from season one, Food Fight, which got quite a lot of attention last year, both good and bad. It was an episode about how some liberal arts colleges spend too much money on amenities and not enough on financial aid. He uses Bowdoin College as an example. And in the last three minutes of the episode, Malcolm goes off the rails. There's only one solution. If you're looking at liberal arts colleges, don't go to Bowdoin. Don't let your kids go to Bowdoin. Don't let your friends go to Bowdoin. Don't give money to Bowdoin or to any other school that serves amazing students. Yeah, he went there. I remember the look on your face when you heard me read that for the first time. And you were like, I can't, you said, I can't believe you're going to go there. (laughs) And that look on your face was exactly what I wanted from listeners. It made me think, oh, that's what I'm after. Is I want everyone to have that kind of shock and to say to themselves, I can't believe he's doing this. And if you do too much of this foreshadowing, then you never get that shock. And the shock is a beautiful thing, right? So consider the range of feelings we might be missing out on. Shock, yes, but also more surprise, more tears, more laughter. We still have to construct our stories well. But the podcast audience is much smarter than we give them credit for. If we trust them to be good listeners, they'll trust us to lead them down the right path. So we can let go of the listener's hand, throw the map out the window, and ditch the overt signposts. Thank you. Next up, we have Martina Castro, founder of bilingual production company Adonde Media. Before we get to her provocation, a quick note. Ella habla en español algunas veces. Oh, excuse me. Martina's provocation starts out in Spanish. For a complete translation of her bilingual talk, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Hola. 
A ver, ¿cuánta gente me puede entender en este momento? Levanten la mano. Hey. Es lindo cuando alguien te habla en tu idioma, ¿no? Pero también hay gente en esta sala, la gran mayoría, me parece, que no me entiende. Y ellos no pueden conectarse conmigo como ustedes pueden. Y esto es lo que está en juego cuando elegimos el idioma de nuestra historia. Y aunque podamos traducir, subtitular o doblar la historia, and even though we can choose to translate, subtitle and use voiceover to make the story accessible in another language. Isn't it just a whole lot better when I talk to you in your own language? Here's the thing. Every time we tell our stories in English, we're choosing not to connect in that direct way with a pretty big group of people, about seven billion or so, who are not native English speakers. So my main question to you today is, why can't your stories be for them too? Now, you can always start small. Um, you know, you could add thoughtful subtitles to your story, like Eleanor McDowell does with her amazing project, Radio Atlas. Check out how she turns audio storytelling into a cinematic experience in this short clip. C'est d'une noirceur, d'une épaisseur, d'une glauquerie. Ça n'a pas d'âme. C'est mort. That ellipsis, I just love it. So, okay, maybe after you get your feet wet, you might want to go further. And then, I suggest you consider the case of this little radio show in New York. Hola, soy Jab Abumrad y esto es Radio Lab, el podcast. Hoy estoy solo porque Robert está de viaje, pero... Tengo... Oh, yes, that is Spanish Jab Abumrad. That really happened. Um, when Radio Lab threw uh, this experiment up online in 2014, over 80% of the people surveyed according to one of my sources, said they liked the idea, um, but they got caught up in the execution. Like, could they really capture that magic chemistry between Jad and Robert? Um, what accent should their Spanish be in? These issues contributed to the death of Spanish Radiolab, and I personally think it's a shame. Yes, straight-up translations are imperfect. It's an age-old problem in Hollywood where famous lines like, here's looking at you, kid, becomes... This. Ve con él, Ilsa. Nada que ver. Totally unmemorable, right? But this has not stopped millions of people from falling in love with our movies, and I don't think it'll stop them from falling in love with your audio stories either. Look, they didn't need carbon copies of Jad and Robert. If anything, the Spanish hosts should have brought their authentic voices to the show and let it become something new, evolve. Just like Slate is doing by having created a Spanish Gabfest. Um, they have new hosts and they use their own voices. So this is the key takeaway. To give your story life in another language, sometimes that means giving it a new voice. But in other cases, you have the voices you need. You just need to consider a different audience. It's something I was left thinking about after helping Sam Greenspan report this story in Chile for 99% Invisible. I was his interpreter and translator as he talked to residents about surviving a massive earthquake in 2010. One of those residents was Luis Enriquez, and he kicks off the episode. Uh, eso de las tres de la mañana. Tres de la mañana. It was around three in the morning. 
I was watching TV with my wife and a neighbor, and all of a sudden, we started feeling the earth shake. And it was just getting stronger and stronger and stronger to the point that we couldn't stand up. I think the show did a lovely job combining the Spanish voices with the story. But let's be real. Luis Enriquez, he never heard it because it was about him, but it wasn't for him. So the next time you have a ton of extra tape in a foreign language, how about you hire a bilingual producer? Make a news story that speaks directly to the audience that you're talking about. Or you could partner with another show to do it, like This American Life did with Radio Ambulante on a story called Caminata Nocturna. In this story, James Spring takes us on a simulated border crossing across, uh, in, well, in Mexico. And of course, all the tape was in Spanish. So when I worked on the version for Radio Ambulante with James, we could dive into that experience just in a way that they couldn't in English. And of course, the most ideal scenario is when you can conceive of a story in another language. I mean, excuse me, in two languages, as KCRW did with Sangre Celestial. Um, it's an audio fiction podcast with a fully bilingual cast of actors, and they created both versions, obviously. This is the hardest, but you know, wherever you are on the spectrum of openness to going bilingual, I hope you'll at least meditate on this. Elegimos la historia que vamos a contar. ¿Cómo la vamos a contar? ¿Y para quién es? En el momento que elegimos el idioma en que va a existir. And there are about seven billion of us hoping you'll consider a language other than your own. Thank you. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Tobin. I'm Kathy. Uh, we are the co-hosts of a show called Nancy. It is a queer podcast. Thank you. <laughs> so we wanted to start off by playing one of our favorite YouTube clips. It's a newscaster making a tiny mistake on air. Right after the break, we're going to interview Eric Weihenmayer, who climbed the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. But he's gay. I mean, he's gay. Excuse me. He's blind. So we'll hear about that. Okay, as we head to the break, I'll look at the okay. six o'clock. So just so we're all clear, she is legitimately teeing up a story about a mountain climber who is blind, but somehow she reaches for gay instead. Mm-hmm. It is a true nightmare. Yep, yep. Uh, we love this video because it is hilarious, but also... <laughs> What she said, it struck us that it's kind of a microcosm of a type of story we hear a lot, even on the radio or in podcasts. So especially with stories that are about anyone but straight, cisgendered, able-bodied white folks, this comes up a lot. Someone is trying to do a thing, but the obstacle is their identity. And so the problem with that is like from the jump, you're othering their identity. Like it's still something we're looking at because it's different. So we started thinking about types of stories that are guilty of this same crime. So we thought we'd use this opportunity to retire three types of stories right now, or at least to get you to start thinking about them differently. For the next time, you're talking about anyone other than a 
cisgendered hetero white person. Okay, so number one is first stories. We all know this. There's the story of the first openly trans lead actor or the first openly gay Boy Scout or Disney Channel's first gay crush. Uh, to be clear, first stories can be great. They can put a spotlight on accomplishment or how messed up it is that it took this long for someone to break through. Right. What we have a problem with is if the bulk of the time that we are talking about a community is first stories, what that communicates is that their struggle is the most interesting thing about them. So first stories make it seem like our struggle is the only story to tell. Which brings us to number two, performing hardship. Okay, so this is a story you can basically boil down to asking someone, tell me what is hard about being you. You're basically asking them on air to like perform the struggle of their community. So again, nothing necessarily wrong with this if you're trying to highlight inequality or build empathy. But if you're going to tell stories of people's hardship, please also make sure you're telling stories of their joy. If we only tell stories of tragedies, that's all we'll be reduced to. And number three brings us back to the beginning of our little talk, which is using someone's identity as the twist. You hear this a lot with stories about gender identity or sexuality. There's someone trying to do something, but hold up, they're trans, or guess what, they're gender non-binary. And these are so harmful because someone's identity should never be the obstacle in the story. It's just who they are. And again, this is a type of othering that makes that person quote unquote different. And so why are we so familiar with these types of story tropes? Because we too have been guilty of using them. We catch ourselves doing this in first drafts of stories all the time because it's easy. And we've learned that it is active work. Something we ask ourselves when we're putting together a story is, how does a person's identity inform how they take on obstacles? Rather than asking them how their identity is the obstacle in and of itself. And it's a subtle dis difference, but it can take you out of the territory that we're talking about here. Uh, and we also just want to say, like, audio is inherently a better uh, medium than anything else at building empathy because you get to hear someone's voice before you see them and make those sort of prejudiced or biased assumptions about who they are. So it is particularly disappointing when radio stories are guilty of othering people's identity. We can be better than this, we should be better than this, and we should be better especially than, than this. Right after the break, we're going to interview Eric Weihenmayer, who climbed the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. But he's gay. I mean, he's gay. Excuse me. He's blind. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that is one of my favorite all-time clips. Thank you for playing that. Um, my name is Maureen McMurray. I work at New Hampshire Public Radio, and I'm so excited to be at Third Coast. There are lots of heavy hitters here. Um, you know, we have WMYC, Gimlet, NPR. Well, what I'm about to talk about um, isn't for you. My provocation is for those of you at not-so-forward-looking stations, places where you're most likely to find GMs and program directors who are wary of podcasts and afraid to take risks. To be fair, this risk aversion, it does stem from very legitimate stresses. There are staffing issues, funding, but this inertia will be the death knell for local stations, and that scares me. But you, yes, you, with your great ideas and go-get-em attitude may be the ones to save the day. 
So, what's an ambitious producer to do? What if the bosses won't listen to your ideas? I am here to tell you that there is a way to fight back without leaving your station behind. Go rogue. All right, now let's say you have a great idea for a podcast and you'd like that podcast to be part of your job. Before you do anything, look up your station's strategic goals and mission statement. It should be on the website. Here are NHPRs. This is the single greatest key to buy-in. It provides an important framework for your idea and concrete talking points that you can later use in meetings with the bosses. Next, join forces with the people at your station who think like you, talented, passionate people. Talk throughout your idea over lunch, give and get feedback from your, college, uh, from your colleagues and encourage them to be tough and honest. Now, I wanna take you back to a time when I started working in radio. We still used carts, um, the WMYC was in the municipal building and public radio was really the only game in town. The where else are you gonna go attitude was real. You all know that those days are long gone and stations are feeling it. Hiring and keeping talented people is hard and it's expensive. And yes, that's a litmus test. If you know that movie, I will buy you a drink and I love you. Anyway, so, so know that it's expensive, it's hard, stations are feeling it. Okay, so you've thought through your idea, it's focused, it supports your station's strategic goals. Make three episodes. Make them great and make them sustainable. The biggest pushback you're going to get is that there's no time or money for your project. And you may want to make the next radio lab, you may be capable of making the next radio lab, but if you have to file daily news reports, it's not going to happen. So just take baby steps, be patient. Okay, so in your bones, you know that this project will totally benefit your station. That isn't enough. Before you unveil your project, think through the conversation that you're going to have with your boss. Anticipate these types of questions. How much will it cost? How will you measure success? Who is the audience? Will it grow your station's audience? Is it fundable? Get stats on all of this stuff. Look at the Edison research, read industry websites, research grant and sponsorship opportunities. Make a data-driven, mission-based case that your boss can't ignore. It is also worth noting that bosses like compound words. Which brings me to my next point, um, which may be tough to swallow, but it's an important one. If you want your bosses to buy into your idea, you or someone in your coalition has to speak their language. Learn Excel, make a budget, use PowerPoint, make pretty graphs. Here are some examples of real slides that I used um, for buy-in for a podcast that we do called Outside In, um, which actually is launching a four-part series today, so you guys should all subscribe and rate it. Anyway, um, so yeah, as you can see, you know, it looks uh, pretty decent, outside in plays, graphs, demographics, strategic podcast cross-collaboration, you see that compound word, bosses really like that stuff. Okay, so you're rounding the corner on your final draft. Now is the time to think about how you can repurpose your work. Pitch a print version of an episode to a magazine, a website, pitch it to All Things Considered or some other podcast. The more places it exists, the better for you. And be sure to graph the audience reach, bosses like all of that stuff. Okay, so your draft is final. You're gonna take a deep breath and press publish. Strike when no one is paying attention. Don't ask for permission, just do it. Immediately gather audience feedback. Set up a Google alert and keep track of every single press mention, social media comment, and any emails you get. 
put those bad boys in a spreadsheet for the bosses. And it's also important to note that you're gonna get a bunch of internal feedback too, and some of it will be useful, some not so useful, some of it will be harmful. If someone above you is giving you crummy feedback, this is what you do, you just look them straight in the eye, you smile, and you say, thanks, I really appreciate your feedback, you will definitely hear those changes, and ignore them, don't, don't make the changes. Here's some feedback that we ignored as we worked on Outside In. I don't get it, this photo's weird, this photo shoot is weird. Um, that's our host Sam, it was um, for Halloween. Um, another one was, don't laugh so much, it makes you sound silly. Look at Sam Evans Brown. Shred the gnar power, bro. Shred it, bro. Ready for this? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely missing a ski. Yes, we didn't, you know, take that into account either. But back to you. So you launched the podcast on your own time, and presumably it was a resounding success. The next step is to leverage that success and make it part of your gig. Now, it may not happen overnight. Stations can move slowly but be sure to establish a strict timeline and ensure that you are a priority. If they don't bite, ask why. If the reason doesn't make strategic sense, start looking for another job. Or just make that project on your own. You did all the research, after all, just do it. Okay, and I understand that this strategy may not work for everyone, but I stand before you as a representative of a team that on more than a few occasions has gone rogue and there are some members of my coalition out there in the audience. Um, we were lucky, our boss listened, so it worked for us. It actually worked so well that a few months ago I was promoted, and now I'm the boss, which is really weird. And, and honestly, my greatest hope is that years from now, some starry-eyed producer will totally ignore my feedback and go rogue. I hope I listen. Thanks. All right. We're halfway through. It's time for the halftime rumble. We have two special guests for you. They're ready to go head to head in this halftime rumble. What are they battling over, you might be asking? Only the most controversial issue in audio today. Is it okay to listen to a podcast on double speed? Okay. You may have heard of the Roman Mars Compromise, which states, if a podcast listener wants to, the podcast listener may listen on double speed to a podcast and at other times not, depending on the podcast. But this is provocations and there is no compromise. We are going to rumble. First, he wrote a controversial article on this very topic for the Chicago Tribune. He's very tall, six foot four, kind of looks like my dad, representing the side of fuck it, you can speed up a podcast if you want to. It's Eric Zorn. In the other corner, defending the side of art and reason. Um, she might have an unfair advantage in this room. I don't care. She's the one and only Third Coast International Audio Festival uh, founder and executive director. And yeah, she is Eric's wife. It is Johanna Zorn! 
So you each have one minute to state your case. Here's my whistle. I'm keeping track on my watch. Eric Zorn, your one minute starts now. You people, like most people, talk too slow. The rate at which words come out of your mouth doesn't begin to match the rate at which most people can comprehend them. You people also create fabulous audio content, content I literally cannot get enough of. And these two reasons are why I'm an enthusiastic user of the accelerated playback option for nearly all podcasts. <laughs> Listening at double speed, or 2x on your uh, iTunes app, gives me all the information and entertainment in half the time and allows me to listen to twice as many of your wonderful documentaries and shows. Wow. So it's a compliment. It is a compliment to your work, not an insult that I contrive ways to consume as much of it as possible. And no less an authority than Ira Glass agrees with me. Quote, we are in fact super meticulous about every second of our shows, but we're not painting the Sistine Chapel here, he told me. People say stuff to us, we choose the best parts, we put the quotes in order, add some script for context, throw in a little plinky music underneath. <laughs> Double speed, says Ira Glass, is fine. Or to put it another way, double speed is fine. Give it up for 2X, we got Eric Zorn. All right, and on the other side of the ring, Johanna Zorn, you have one minute. This is what I live with. Okay, what does Ira Glass know? <laughs> Audio storytelling is an art form, and timing is a primary color of the producer's palette. Carefully crafted pacing, the pauses, the accelerations, the unique qualities of each human voice give a piece its own special rhythm. The rhythm builds empathy and a sense of place, creates tension and resolution, and draws the listener in close. If, on the other hand, looking at you, hon, you prefer to download a bunch of information as quickly as you can, just read the transcript. It'll even be faster. But if you want to experience a story the way the producer intended, then have some patience. Your reward will be the opportunity to be moved by the lives of others. That's why we're here at the Third Coast Conference, to get a better at building those experiences for listeners. That's why podcasting is booming, because of the art of audio storytelling. Elise Spiegel said it best. Producers harbor in their hearts the idea that if they are careful enough with their work, they will genuinely touch someone and help them to feel or understand something they did not feel or understand before. So when you listen on double time, it's a little bit like taking someone's hopes and dreams and sincere best efforts and crushing them under the keel of your boot like a cockroach. Producers, vote 1x. All right. So you guys know what's going to happen now, right? We're going to take an official vote. The official vote uh, will be done by how loud each side can be. And Emily, our producer, is going to make the final call. Okay, so get ready. Um, summon all of your beliefs on the topic and dig in deep. And anyone who wants to vote for 2X, we want to hear you now. (laughs) 
Okay, Emily, did you hear that? Great. All right, and now, anyone who's on the 1X camp, I want to hear you now. It's a home game for her. Sorry, print journalism. Sorry, Ira Glass. It's one time speed! Hey, it's Maya. We're going to take a quick break and be back with more provocations in a minute. You're listening to Chicago's Progressive Radio Adventures. This American life, I might reply. The show about all the unseen... Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories? Or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed? This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumran. Well, worry no more, because Third Coast has you covered. I'm Gwen Maxi, host of Third Coast's podcast, ReSound. ReSound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we're back with the rest of Provocations from the 2017 Third Coast Conference. This white guy voted 1X. (sighs) Hey, I'm John Bewin. I live in Durham, North Carolina, where I teach at CDS, the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke, and make the Scene on Radio podcast. Our most recent series uh, on the show is called Seeing White turning the lens around, looking straight at white America, and at the notion of whiteness itself. Where did this idea of a white race come from? God? Nature? Or is it man-made? 
And if somebody manufactured the idea, why? For what purpose? How has the meaning of white changed over the centuries, and how does it function now? As of this year, non-Hispanic white people, as the census calls us, are 61% of the U.S. population and dropping. Looking around this room, I'm told that we're about 70%, 70 to 75% white-ish. Um, <clears throat> this is progress. This wonderful conference and public radio and podcasting are somewhat less lily-white than we used to be. But we've got to do a lot more. It's just not okay to have hordes of people who look like me still out there telling most of the stories, including the ones about communities of color. Folks from those communities can be hired and trained to do it with more knowledge and nuance. Props to PRX for your efforts. And to AIR, hello, new voices. Where are y'all? <clears throat> In the meantime, while we're trying to get toward equity, what do you do if you're like me? You're hopelessly white. You have a job reporting or telling stories, and you, and you actually care deeply about issues of race and ethnicity. In fact, you think race is the story in your society. So what do you do that's not the usual thing? Take chances, find fresh ways to collaborate, and not with the usual suspects. Go at things from new angles. Two projects I've done over the last couple of years. Before seeing white in 2015-16, I got to work with AIR, <clears throat> excuse me, and its Local or Finding America initiative and with WUNC. We did a storytelling project in Durham, recruited a diverse team of citizen storytellers, and trained them to produce their own pieces about race and class in Durham. For example, this piece by Courtney Smith, a 27-year-old baker. She decided to interview Noah, her white coworker. They talked together about how optimistic their generation was about race when they were growing up 10 or 15 years ago. We just all have to get along, and we will get along, especially our children, because they don't see color. The goal was that you just hang out with your friends on a regular basis, and then we don't have to deal with racism anymore. Like, it'll go away on its own. We just keep pushing forward, right? And Noah felt that, too, at the time, growing up. And it was, you know, childhood idealism and all that. But there was a certain feeling of kind of like, oh, we're, we're moving past that a bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we're starting... You know, in hindsight, it's kind of like, well, there probably wasn't much to that. That old optimism. That was a series for WUNC and for CNON Radio. Obviously, those pieces sounded different than if I'd been the reporter. And one of the story makers, I am thrilled to say, Kimani Hall, then 23 years old. He had no idea he was interested in audio till he joined our project. He's now working at WUNC. Then sometime last year... I looked around and said, damn, when it comes to race, white people are the fucking story. We've got virtually all the power. This society was built to advantage us at every turn. We deny that white privilege exists. At the same time, we're accepting it as our birthright. Tens of millions of us are still voting to preserve white dominance in the 21st century. And now, of course, you've got the dudes with the swastikas and the tiki torches. <clears throat> so that series, Seeing White. 
It's heavily researched, and we took deep dives into history. We named names who invented race and racism and American-style slavery. We look at the bonkers racial science that justified it all for centuries and at who's really got most of the government handouts for 400 years. The episodes also feature my conversations with the brilliant Dr. Chenjirai Kumanyika. If he were here, he would be up here. Uh, for a change, a person of color diagnosing the trouble with white culture. In a way, the effort to get people to come together under the banner of whiteness is sort of always been about power and exploitation. So I don't know what that means about trying to salvage the idea of like good whiteness. You know, that's mm-hmm. something that you got to wrestle with. <laughs> right. You know, when was right. whiteness good? You know, it's kind of like when was America great? <laughs> so that's my pitch. If you're white and you want to tell stories about race and ethnicity, maybe hand over the mic and help people of all shades tell their own stories or turn the lens on white folks. Systemic racism, white on black violence in all its forms, white affirmative action. You may be just the right person to tell that story. Thanks, y'all. Having me, I'm Sarah Alvarez. I run Outlier Media in Detroit, and I'm very happy to be back here at Third Coast. I am no longer a radio reporter. I used to be, but now I work in SMS and print. Uh, my focus is on information gaps and accountability. So why did I lose? Why did I leave radio? It wasn't because I didn't like my job. I actually loved most of it. And so I'm not here to tell anybody to get out of radio, okay? Um, But I left because the news consumers that I am loyal to are low-income news consumers. And these news consumers are just not getting enough from public radio, and most stations aren't really working hard enough to reach them. So I was wrestling with that, and also I was thinking that doing a story, even a fairly big story, wasn't the only way and wasn't always the best way for journalists to use journalism to have impact. Um, As an example, in Detroit, we have an issue with landlords who try to collect rent on places that they're losing to the tax auction or are in terrible condition or that they don't even own. And it's a big problem, but everyone affected already knows about it and yet can't really change it. And nobody else really seems to care. I know because I've done several of those stories, and I can tell you nobody seemed to care. Um, So instead, what if journalists reported and shared information about, say, ownership and auction risk directly with the people likely to be affected, with people who know just what to do with that information? It's not a story. It's not a traditional way to use journalism But it is a very kind of old school view of journalism, giving people reported, vetted information to hold people in power accountable. So back to why I left radio. I really wanted to fill these information gaps, and I just, I couldn't get close enough in radio. 
Um, and I quit my job when I found out I had a uh, Jonas Knight Fellowship at Stanford, and I used that year to build Outlier and to get pilot funding from the Kellogg Foundation. <clears throat> so it's been about a year since Outlier has been running. <clears throat> I do have a strict methodology, but no time to talk about it. So the short version is that Outlier's first beat is around housing, because that is the number one information gap in Detroit. And to do my work, I just buy a bunch of text numbers, a bunch of cell numbers, and then a bot texts an intro to Outlier Media as a community journalism service. My news consumers can enter their address into the bot, as you see, and right away they get a text report on the address. So who really owns it, if there are back taxes, if it's gonna be auctioned, things like this. And a lot of people, that's all they need, is that little report. But as you can see, not always. So every Outlier user also gets asked if they want to follow up, and about 40% of my users say that they do. And the bot does not do the follow-up. I do the follow-up within 48 hours, and I help my news consumers get the information that they need. They have very good questions, um, very good stories come out of this, not just for me, but other reporters around Detroit that I work with. Um, I have texted tens of thousands of people by this point, and it really works. People have used this information to get inspections done, to save their homes from the tax auction, to fight evictions. Um, in one very crazy case, a woman used it to get the city to give her her deed back when they accidentally gave it to a city department in air. So, you know, it's accountability reporting. But it's also very interesting and it is changing policies as well. And I'm getting ready to do a new beat um, on utility shutoffs. And my goal there is going to be the same. It's going to be to deliver value first and then get what I need journalistically. Sorry, I'm ahead of myself on my slides. But in terms of who I work for, Let's see, We're, I'm sorry, I wanna to get to the right one. because All right, so who I work for is low-income news consumers. It's a huge group of people, right? It's a third of the country. It is many times bigger than the largest podcast audiences. And I think it is worth it to meet the needs of this audience. I think low-income news consumers are not the only undervalued audience, of course. And I think we should all work harder to meet the needs of these undervalued audiences. I'm not trying to pick on NPR, but this is a slide that they use to attract underwriting. And I think it's important to say that this view of what makes an audience valuable, that they're like B2B decision makers or whatever, is very limiting. So this is my provocation for you. Who is your audience now? And are these the people that you really want to reach. I don't know if you were told, I was told, like pretend like you're talking to the guy at the bar or pretend like you're talking to your mom. And that is fine if you want to talk to the guy at the bar or if you want to talk to your mom. But if not, who is the audience that you really want to reach? Figure that out and then figure out what the information that they want and need is. And it might take a little reinvention, but I think it is incredibly Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference. Next week, Dennis Funk will be back with another session from the 2017 Third Coast Conference. In the meantime, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org or download our podcast Resound for more audio stories from around the world. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.